Hello and welcome to the Bang to Rights podcast. My name is Peter Murray. I'm a lecturer in multimedia journalism here at Manchester Metropolitan University. I'm joined today by my MMU journalism colleague, Dave Porter. Hello, Dave. Hi, Pete. And by Jez Craddock. Hi, Jez. Hi, Pete. Um, we, as keen, keen listeners might hear, we're recording in the journalism newsroom again this week. The studio's booked out to the gunnels with students finishing off their podcast and their radio assignments. So we're in here in the boardroom part of the, of the news area. It's a little bit quieter, but we are right next to a construction site because our new arts and humanities building where we're going to be working um, from around about this time next year is actually under construction as we speak so if there's any drilling or bumping or hammering going on um, we blame the builders next door Um, but I I hope you don't find it too distracting but I'm also joined uh, here by one of our journalism students Finn Burrows who's fresh from recording one of your assignments downstairs in the radio studio. Hi Finn, welcome to Bang to Rights. Hi Pete. Finn's here because one of the issues we want to look at arises from your report earlier this week on the Northern Quota about the attack on the tram in Utrecht on Monday in which three people were shot dead. So Finn, tell us about the report, how you got to do it and who you spoke to and and so on. So um, I'd never really done breaking news before so I decided after the Christchurch shootings, where basically I just updated Twitter a bit, I thought I'd have a go at trying to do an actual article that meant that I had to keep coming back to it and updating it. Um, that was my main motivation for doing it, and it, it was a bit strange because it's quite a sensitive topic, but um, uh, I think it's, I had to just rely on lots of different sources to try and build this narrative without jumping to conclusions or misleading the reader in any way. Who were the, the kind of people that you spoke to? Because wh- one of the reasons that we, that Northern Quarter, wanted to do the story at all is that we got, we have this relationship with uh, one of the universities in Utrecht. Yeah. So yeah, um, we do have a relationship, and some of their students came over in the autumn of last year, and I met yeah. them, and yeah. so I had a prior connection to them. So when this occurred, I sent a few of them some messages, uh, make sure they're okay, and asking if they could talk about it and so I did. Um, Luke, who's featured in the article, um, he told me that basically he rides that tram where the attack occurred pretty much every day or he did ride it every day for like eight years and on his way to uni he does it several times a week and uh, something that wasn't included was that um, his accommodation, he wasn't there at the time, but his accommodation, thats they found the car that the shooter used to get away just outside of his accommodation. And he, he said that was quite scary, the fact that everything happened so close to where he was living. Having said that, at the same time, um, I had a connection, one of my relatives lives there, they're an expat, they're living in Holland, and so I connected with them as well, asking what it was like for them as someone from the outside. And they said that they didn't really feel anything was too different but then they were living outside of the province of Utrecht, but only about half an hour, maybe an hour away, depending on how you get there. Um, So they were relying a lot on what police were telling them. Um, So I think you've got to strike that balance between personal and fact. One of the the reasons that some people are are (coughs) careful about this kind of reporting, reporting on A, fast-moving stories, but also where a lot of people are killed or injured, arises partly because of our experience here in Manchester with the arena bombing two years ago. Was that something that you were aware of when you made those first first approaches to students, that they might know people who were involved? 
Yeah, no, I, I was very concerned, um, especially when there isn't much information about, because I remember with the Manchester Arena bombings, loads of people kept messaging me asking if I was okay. Yeah. Um, I was in the city centre at the time, but I didn't know what was occurring because what I was hearing was there was something completely different to what had actually occurred. There were lots of conflicting things, so I was very conscious about that. And so when I was asking them, I approached it from a very sensitive um, point of view because I was, I was remembering what I'd experienced and I was thinking, I hope that they're okay and that every, everyone around them is okay. Fortunately, where the university is located, it's about 10 kilometres away yeah. from where it occurred, so most people weren't anywhere near it at the time. So everyone that I've spoken to is fine and everyone that they knew was fine and that, that, was, that was good. Yeah. Jez, Dave, any, any thoughts yourselves about it? Yeah. And about our, our, our coverage more generally? Yeah, and I, I, having read your piece, Finn, I thought it was a really, really well-written piece and well-researched and some really powerful um, comments in there. I was just wondering, following on from what you just said, how did you sort of open your interviews with, particularly with Luke, um, bearing in mind sort of ethical approach to this kind of reporting, as, as Pete touched on with the arena attack? I basically just messaged him on Facebook and I said, hi, Luke. Um, Hope, hope everything's okay over there mm. at the moment. It seems a bit hectic, just making sure everything's all right. And so that was my sort of opening to make sure that he was all right. So he replied to me then about mm. that and I was like, and then I explained that um, we were planning on doing a piece for the Northern Quota about it. I was hoping if he had any um, media or photos or even if he just wanted to comment about how he was feeling about it. And he said he'd be happy to do that. Um, so I tried to approach it from that very sensitive point of view first. I didn't go straight in with, can you tell me about this? It was, mm -hmm. are you okay? Um, if is everything fine, F hope you're fine, sort of thing. Mm. Has he had any other approaches from the media? He said he hadn't, but Utrecht University does run a live blog in which they um, update everything that's happening in Utrecht. So. Um, there was, there were things happening at the time and he said that he was talking to those people because there were people on the same course as him that were running that, um, but no, he hadn't had outside people approach them. Okay. So Finn, we're going to be talking about uh, coverage of the Christchurch a bit later on, but you'd obviously gone on social media to, to check what was happening and look at images and I noticed that you included a, a tweet with a picture embedded uh, of the scene and that had been uh, doctored, is that right? Are you, you saw two different versions of that and you quite correctly went with the second version. Do you want to talk us through that process? So on the actual article for um, Utrecht, I, I was looking online for media to include uh, and I found a tweet of a tram, of the tram itself with some police cars outside and so I originally included that. Um, but something I only realised after publishing was that um, you could actually see the body underneath the tram of the person that had, one of the people that had died. Um, so after that, I I took it off. I I censored it mm. just in case. Even though I'd seen that other platforms had mm. included the body on there, I decided that it would be best to censor it. But I'd included a link to the original if people did want to go through to that itself. Yeah, very sensible. Yeah, yeah, a really thoughtful approach. I mean, to to the whole thing. So uh, we'll we'll post a link to to your article, Finn, on, on the show notes so that people can have a look at it. And it's, I mean, it's really fascinating to get 
that background from you about how you went about it and so, some of the other things that were kind of at the back of your mind because it's a it's a really good working example I think for other mm. students about mm. how to do something like yeah, this. Yeah I mean obviously I'd, I'd never done anything like this before so I, and I was learning as I was going along and I was communicating with tutors about this sort yeah. of thing and they were giving me advice and so that was really helpful because it was a different way of doing something that I'd never really done before. Yeah. Well I, from my point of view it worked out pretty well so I'm Finn Burrows, thanks very much indeed for coming on Bang to Rights. Thank you very much. So uh, a reminder that you're listening to Bang to Rights from the MMU Journalism Unit. You can tweet us at RightsBang with any comments or suggestions for future podcasts. Now, all of this in Utrecht comes amid a new wave of global criticism of the social media giants over their failure to prevent the live streaming of video footage from the body camera used by the Christchurch gunman who killed 50 worshippers at two mosques in the city a week ago. Now, much of the criticism is focused on Facebook's founder, Mark Zuckerberg, who's remained pretty much absent and silent so far on the issue. The platforms do say they believe they did all they could to prevent the material being duplicated hundreds of thousands of times and reposted. Facebook says it caught and deleted 1.2 million versions, although that still left more than a quarter of a million in circulation. There's also been considerable criticism here of the online news sites such as The Sun and The Daily Mail, which use sections of the material. Now, we'll come back to that in just a moment, but first I wanted to look quickly at the impact this kind of footage can have on those people whose job it is to try to find and remove it. The internet giants, of course, say that most of this work is done by machines and algorithms, but it's also carried out by people, real human beings, who are often invisible, poorly paid and very badly exploited. The BBC this week screened a film called The Cleaners. The most shocking thing that I saw when I was contemplating back then is that a kid sucking a dick inside a cubicle and the kid was like really naked, which is really, I don't know, unforgivable for me to see. So I went straight to my team leader and told him that I can't do this. I really can't do this. I can't look at the child. But then he told me that I should do it because this is my job and I signed the contract for it. That's the voice of an anonymous content moderator working at a facility in the Philippines. I've edited out part of what she said in the film because it's really too shocking to play here. However, I would recommend people watch the documentary. I'll put a link to it on the show notes. The filmmakers also spoke to Sarah Roberts from the University of California. She's credited with coining the term commercial content moderation for this kind of work. When you open the floodgates and you ask the entire world to broadcast yourself, upload your life, uh, share everything that you can think of to share, uh, people respond. People with all sorts of motivations and interests and desires respond. When Facebook or Google claim that they don't have any employees in Manila, they can legitimately do that by using the labor of a third-party outsourcing firm. It's true that the paychecks don't come from Google or Facebook. They come from an outsourcing firm based in the Philippines. Commercial content moderators labor in the shadows of social media platforms, out of sight and out of mind, actually unknown to the millions of users of the platforms who've never given it much of a thought, who does the cleanup work on their platforms. So Dave, what do we think about all of this? First about 
this kind of hidden world of, yeah, of moderation. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's fascinating. And, and fascinating in the sense that I think most people um, outside of this particular world would have no idea who, who you know, yeah. who, what does moderation, who does a moderation, what does it entail. It's quite a secretive sort of setup. And um, I think, as you say, Pete, many people do think it's down to algorithms and not to somebody in effectively what sounds like a, you know, Philippine sweatshop um, and I think what's also interesting is that actually t- last week we were talking about the journalist from The Age in, in Melbourne I think it was yep. um, who'd sued her employer for um, PTSD for covering uh, traumatic events and uh, actually th- I know that uh, I think having seen bits of film some of these moderators do the same. They, they, they in fact, uh, ended up um, suing their, uh, their employers yeah. for, for trauma, effectively, yeah. for, um, yeah. for PTSD. And you can see why. You know, it's probably akin to, I don't know, a, a police inspector or a police officer having to troll through images of child abuse. Uh, and uh, I'm not saying... Uh, I think the duty of care is obviously very different, but there's that danger of the curious trauma, isn't there? Yeah. That, that well, one of the one of the things people will remember back uh, Christmas time when we did a special looking at um, PTSD amongst mm. uh, journalists. Um, one of the things that came up was, in practice, if police officers who are dealing with, Frank, for example, paedophilia and sexual mm. abuse and so on, they get roted off the job of sure. looking at that stuff. Yeah. Whereas for these um, content moderators and for a lot of journalists who might mm. be watching execution videos for example day in day out it's kind of part of their job and in some cases employers don't see it as part of their duty of care to take people away from that stuff for a for a spell away from i mean it forms part of the kind of global globalized uh pattern of workforce that you know the west forms out its dirty jobs to to you know um countries where, where labor is cheap and conditions are to say the least you know um not as uh, favourable as we are yeah, in and, America and or the West or, or Europe. Yeah. Um, and it's out of sight, it's out of mind, you know. And that's one of Sarah Roberts' points uh, sure. I mentioned from the University of California. She, she said that there's this kind of deliberate policy so that Facebook say, we have a, we're exercising our duty of mm. care towards our employees yeah. by getting the algorithms to do this, when in fact it's actual human beings, yeah. but it, they're contract, subcontractors and so, so on. So what price are you paying for your, you know, for your internet, yeah. effectively? So on that thought, let's look back as well to, to the, the criticism of some mm. of the newspapers here for, for broadcasting some of the footage from, from this guy's sure. um, camera. Well, I think, uh, unfortunately, you know, the press has not covered itself in glory. Yeah. Um, first off, it was the, uh, the mirror apologising for, uh, inadvertently, as they would say, screening some of the footage, uh, and an apology was uh, put up pretty much straight away. Or some sort, not an apology, but, uh, you know, uh, almost a mea culpa. Uh, and then, as you say, Pete, um, parts of the manifesto, this guy's manifesto being screened. And although, as you pointed out, there's no footage of the, you know, killings of itself. Of the killings themselves, um, yeah. It seems that the desire to, you know, well, operating a 24-hour news cycle, did the desire to, you know, to, to get stuff out quickly. Um, quality control has, has stopped. Well, we can, just thinking back to what Finn was saying about how the corrections that he had to make to a yes. particular one single image because sure. there was, you know, you could just about see a body visible under the tram. Um, and it's it's good to hear that, mm. but it's not, it's not no. uniform and it's not across the board, is it? it's not a new conundrum what we're facing. Yeah. You know, we, we live, some would say, in an age of terror, 
of it, you know, post 9-11, we've had to deal with this um, as a profession. So how come we're still, you know, failing? And, and it's caused quite a big backlash, you know, just reading today about one of the senior officers in the Met calling upon the you know, the media to take responsibility. And we can yes. talk about responsibility from Facebook and, and whoever, Twitter, but actually we've got to recognise that we were publishers uh, and we have a, you know, a, a specific role in society. So, um, you know, it's very all very well to say, should we regulate internet giants? Yes, I think maybe we should. But actually, what, what role do journalism, what do we as journalists play? And we have to consider, you know, and the fray. And, you know, when you think back to Paul Levison the threat of regulation, are we acting responsibly, responsibly, are we responsible publishers, how are we evidencing that? When you look at what's happened in the past week, admittedly it's not the entire press, it's just some sections, uh, it does cause you some disquiet. There's, there's a lot of talk already about, for example, in New Zealand and Australia, there are quite strict privacy laws that mean that the families of the bereaved yes. could take, for, for instance, Facebook to court for broadcasting images of their their dead relatives. Now, mm. there are similar, similar-ish provisions under the, the Human Rights Act that might yes. allow people to take privacy cases, um, and that might help maybe choke off the source of this material. But as you say, there's still a responsibility on journalists and editors yeah. in our area I mean, to I make sure that, that, slightly, stuff, that material isn't used whenever it does turn slightly up. Slightly troubling. I think ultimately we can, we can balance, for example, if you want to talk about Article 8, Freedom of the Press, versus Article 8, Human Rights Act, yep. privacy, privacy, and ultimately, as an issue, you know, like uh, a mass shooting or a terrorist attack, there, there has to be a right of the media to publish, and I wouldn't want to see privacy intruding too much, but ultimately, we have to report responsibly, and if we don't, then what will happen is legislators will come in and say, well, okay, maybe there are privacy rights to be expect, you know, to be uh, respected here, whereas previously... You know, um, we would have put in not a free market, but would have been less uh, restricted in what we report. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's slightly worrying. It, it is worrying, and I'm, I'm certain we're going to we're going to come back to it. We'll mm. probably sort of leave that there for for the moment, but yeah. it's something that we will definitely return to because there are issues around potential fines for platforms. There's a uh-huh. debate going on more widely about whether there should be a ban on on live streaming or at least putting some kind of delay on the live stream yes. so that people get a chance to view it before they redistribute it, recirculate yeah. I mean, it. And before. that would happen possibly at source as well. In so. the parachutings, there was, you know, yeah. very similar yeah. uh, uh, taking place, uh, very similar debate. And um, the debate doesn't seem to be acted upon. <laughs> so it's quite yeah. interesting. Yeah. So what do you think? Remember, you can tweet us at RightsBang. Are the platforms doing enough? Are they too easy a target for the politicians? As we heard a little bit last week from Joe Stevens, MP. Um, or what do you hope the government will do when it publishes its long-awaited online harms white paper later on in the spring? Do please leave us a comment. But finally, on Bang to Rights this week, school students around the UK and globally are already preparing for another school climate strike in the coming weeks. It's a story which the Northern Quota covered on the day. Of, of the most recent strike last Friday. It's also an issue which we debated during a session with the first-year students earlier this week. Here's some of the voices from Friday's protest. I'm here today because we haven't got any time to waste. We have 11 years until we're facing even more dramatic well, climate catastrophe and we need to make some noise to make 
the people that can do something listen. How do you think this is covered by the media, the whole topic of climate change? So far it's been really poor and I appreciate there are big things happening at the moment. Brexit is overshadowing everything. Sorry. <laughs> and of course it's, it's, it's a big thing that we should be concerned about. So is the globe, so is the planet on which we live. I think it is so sad that our um, MPs have not discussed climate in Parliament for, for so long, and when they did, only half the benches, if that, were full. Um, so no, I think the media's been poor. I think people truly don't understand the severity of the situation that we're facing. There's just not enough of it. It's one of the biggest issues we face, and it's not treated like that and it's often distorted and, and misrepresented. I actually think it covers it in a way which won't make people take it seriously. They sort of do a balanced argument, like, is it true or is it not true? They're not saying, you know, this is happening. They're saying, what do you think? Giving it to people who aren't actually experts, which worries me a little bit, because it's not an opinion-based you know, phenomenon. It's, it's facts, so that's what I find a bit worrying, which they're doing in the media today. People! Some opinions on, on the media's coverage of, of climate issues from the school strike for climate in Manchester's St Peter's Square. Thanks to our colleague Ellie Shember Critchley for recording those. But we followed up that event with the first years on Tuesday to debate how the climate strikes are being covered and how climate literate or carbon literate journalists, how carbon literate journalists actually need to be. Um, Dave, what do you reckon? I mean, some criticism in there of how journalists have covered climate issues over the years. Yeah, fairly simplistic, I would say, mm-hmm. you know, especially the mainstream media and um, maybe maybe rather patronising, uh, especially when, you know, school pupils are involved. And, um, and I think it just gives credence to the, you know, some parts of the political establishment to deny climate change. Um, so I think we've got a definite role to play in education. Yeah. You know, and maybe we're not doing as well as we should be doing. One of the things that struck me is just how interested actually some of our some of our students are in the, mm. in the issues around climate change. And and you know, I've had lots of lots of assignments, lots of bits of work that students have done over the last couple of years have you know been on plastic pollution yeah. or generally pollution issues or or, or the ecology more yeah, generally. Definitely. Certainly they're, they're taking not exactly an activist stance on things mm. but definitely interested in exploring the issues yeah. around which is great it's campaigning journalism yeah. you know one of my students did a, a big campaign on fast fashion yeah. and yeah. the effects that fashion has in you know in, in dumping tons and tons of clothes and the cost of the environment so and another one did one on, on you know uh, bamboo straws and plastic straws and like you said the effects upon that yeah. so um yeah it looks like we're, you know we're, we're, there's a new generation of uh eco-conscious uh, journalists. One of the things through. that we, we, did, we did with the first years was we had a pile of newspapers and news stories and asked the students to pick out any story at random oh. and then to find a climate angle in mm-hmm. that story. Well, so it was a huge range of things, yeah. everything from professional footballers flying around in jets all over the place <laughs> and the effect on the, their carbon footprint. So yeah. that was a really interesting exercise. Yeah. And I think given you know, that we live in the Trump era of, of climate denial, and um, then this is really important for us. Yeah. 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 Politicians, take heed.
So if you have a view on that, and I'm almost certain you do, if you do have a view on that, please please let us know at Rights Bang. Um, that's just about it for this week. Before we go, Jess has had to scuttle off because he's, he's uh, got to uh, meet some of the students already. But Dave, what, what can your students expect for the next week or so? Well, uh, keep coming calm, up to keep, keep coming up to revision and time revise. and marking time. Yeah, in fact, today I finished my last uh, session with the media law graduates, postgrads. We, we covered uh, sources, and that's it. We've covered all the topics now, so it's just knuckle-down time. Um, the next sessions will be devoted entirely to uh, revising and, and looking at what we've covered. So, yes, it's been a long year. Yeah, it's it's been it's a enjoyable. long it's been a long year. <laughs> we're, we're probably coming to the end of, of Bang to Rights for this season. Yes. Not the end of the podcast, but for this season, I, th- I think next week is going to be Brexit Eve. Um, if things keep, go keep to tuned. Theresa May's plan, <laughs> but so yeah. I think um, we're we're looking at next week. We'll probably cover how Brexit has been covered um, over the last two and a bit years, well, almost three years well, now. A since week the is a long time in politics. So. A week is an extremely long time mm, in politics. A day is a long days. time in politics at this moment. So I, I'm, I'd be a fool to, to guess what's going to happen between now and, and nec- uh, recording day next Thursday. Uh-huh. But that's the rough plan. And, and then we'll probably wrap it up for, for a little while. Um, but I'll give you more details about um, what we'll be doing. Remember, in the meantime, though, you can subscribe to Bang to Rights and continue to scra- um, subscribe to Bang to Rights on Apple Podcasts because even though we, we finish the season formally next, Next week, I'll almost certainly be putting out other podcasts during the summer um, into well into April, May, and, and all the way through. So you'll find us on Stitcher as usual. You can search for Bang to Rights on the MMU Northern Quota SoundCloud feed. All one word: MMU Northern Quota. Dave, anything else that the Northern Quota has been covering this we, week? Well, of course, we've got Finn's report on the Utrecht shooting, yeah, yeah, yeah. and we've also coming up uh, Watch This Space on Saturday with the People's Vault in London. Yeah. There are coaches going down from Manchester. We have students on the coaching coaches. Uh, who will be live tweeting and covering the event yeah. uh, as we speak on Saturday. And I, I hope uh, Ellie, Ellie who, who covered the climate changes, is also going yes. and she'll be covering it. So we'll have some material back from there as well to, to have a look and kick off that that discussion about, about Brexit. But uh, that's it. Thanks very much, Dave. We have been Bang to Rights. Thanks, Pete. Finally, remember you can tweet us at Rights Bang. Follow us for updates about the podcast and cases or stories we've been following in the courts and in the news. And do please let us know if there are topics or issues from your lectures or from your reading which you want us to cover in future editions but in the meantime thanks for listening we'll see you soon